So this week I received an email, on, it was an article, and the article said, the top 10 things busy pastors must do if they're going to be effective. The top 10 things busy pastors must do if they're going to be effective. And, and I read it because obviously I want to be effective as a pastor. And as I was reading it, there was things on that list that you'd probably uh, think were um, normal things that a pastor should be doing, things like studying, things like praying, things like preparing messages, caring for people, and all those kinds of things. But then there was, uh, in the list, number four stood out to me. Number four kind of grabbed my attention, and it said, a busy pastor, in order to be effective, number four said they need to do something that was three words, call out sin. They have to call out sin. And the premise behind this is that one of the roles of a pastor is to prepare the people who are hearing him for the life that's to come. And if you have a pastor or a church that never calls out sin and never says, here's what's going, they're failing you as a person because they're not preparing you for what's to come because you don't want to know the ramifications of sin when you're standing before your maker when you die. So though it's uncomfortable, I mean, who likes to have their sin called out? I know I don't like my sin called out. It's not a comfortable thing. It's something that we don't care for, but yet it's so graciously important. And I say graciously because these passages in the scripture and the way pastors call out sin is sometimes they do that individually, but most of the time they do it as they teach God's word because God's word calls out sin. But when we have those passages that call out sin, we need to realize though they may be difficult, they're a gift of grace and of love because we have time before we face our maker to make adjustments and repent as necessary and handle it the way that God would have us handle it. I remember when I first entered the ministry 21 years ago, I thought one of the reasons I wanted to be a pastor naively was that, boy, that would be a job where everyone would like me, right? I mean, who hates a pastor? You know, everyone likes the pastor, and then I saw as I got into it, when you begin to have to call people out in sin and you begin to have to preach messages that are difficult, sometimes you're not always liked. There was a very wise pastor who said, if you want a job where everyone likes you, don't be a pastor, go sell ice cream. Everybody loves the ice cream person, right? Not necessarily a pastor. But here's the deal. It's not just pastors that are called to call out sin. It's all Christians. If we're going to live the way God intended us to live, if we're going to be the people of God, if we're going to be people who follow Jesus, it is a call to walk and call out sin, first of all, in our lives, first of all, in our hearts. We have to be honest and have a deep level of self-awareness that when we sin, we call it out in us. And then through gracefully uh, laced conversations and love, we call out sin where it needs to be called out in those that we love and those that we care about. It's part of the Christian life. And at Crossview Church, part of our DNA is that we want to be a transforming community. We want to be a community, a group of people who are transforming, who are becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what we're all about. And one of the ways we do that is our lives are marked by biblical teaching. Meaning that what God says in his word is something that we take to heart and that we look it over. And that's a huge part of who we are as a church. So the key question is this as we wrap up this series in Galatians. Will we adjust our lives 
to live by the truth? Will we adjust our lives to live by the truth? When you hear God's truth, when you hear it proclaimed, even if it's hard, even if it calls out something, even if it makes us uncomfortable, which if we read it face value, it should, will we adjust our lives to humbly live by the truth and say that what's written here is a bigger standard than my own personal preferences? Are we willing to do that? That's the question we want to look at today. And so I titled this Spirit or Self, How Are We Going to Live? And I encourage you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, if you have your Bible here and you're new to the Bible, uh, we're glad you brought it. Uh, if, to get to Galatians, if you go to the New Testament, kind of three-quarters of the way through, start turning to the left, go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll go past Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then you'll find Galatians. If you hit Ephesians or Philippians, you went too far, come back, and I'll be on page 1034 in the Sanctuary Bible, the Worship Center Bible, 1034. And in this passage, I want to look at two amazing truths that God gives us. Two amazing truths that he gives us in order to live our lives for him. So the first truth that he gives us that we're going to look at is this one, that God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Look at verse 7 of Galatians chapter 6. It says, don't be deceived. Be alert. Wake up. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Now we need to pause there and talk about that. What does that mean? Is Paul like in a different world because God is mocked all the time in our world? But he's saying God is not mocked. So what does he mean by that? Because in the world you and I live in, God is mocked all the time. His ways are mocked. His uh, ideas mocked. Oftentimes his people are mocked. God is mocked in this world. So when he says God is not mocked, what is he talking about? The other point we need to look at is that God is often mocked at times in the church. Though it may not be verbally mocked, God is mocked in the church anytime we take his command and we willfully and intentionally ignore it and live however we want because that seems easier. When we do that as his followers, God is mocked. And so when this says God is not mocked, it's not like kind of blindly saying God is not mocked and, he, and he's kind of out of touch with what's really happening. When this says God is not mocked, it says something scarier than that. What it's saying is there is going to be consequence if God is mocked. If God is mocked, it doesn't go without consequence. It doesn't just kind of disappear. God just doesn't like put that under the carpet. Something happens when God is mocked. And sometimes we could say, you know, if I look at what the Bible says and I live however I want and I mock God, nothing really big happened. But in Romans 1, it says, be careful with that attitude. Because what's happening there is you are storing up wrath, which is a scary thought. But what this is saying is God is not mocked. It brings to mind another passage of Scripture in Psalm chapter 2. Uh, there's a picture of what's happening here. And in Psalm chapter 2, it says this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, meaning the Father and the Son, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. Here's the picture of what's going on in that passage. All the rulers of the world are coming together for a meeting. 
All the kings, all the presidents, everyone is coming together. And in this meeting, what they're saying is, we are sick and tired of God's law and his ways governing us. We are sick and tired of God's influence on this world. We are sick and tired of how God is is pushing his ways on us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to throw off his authority. We're going to take God out of the picture. We're not going to have God and his ways rule and reign on this earth anymore. We're going to rule and reign on this earth and kick God out. That's what's happening in this council. And what is God's response? The Lord in heaven laughs. And he doesn't laugh because it's funny. He laughs because it's absolutely absurd to think that a group of human beings could come together and say, you know what, we're going to take God's authority and his power and his kingdom and his rule, and we're just going to cast that aside. We don't need that. The the actual thought that a human being could even get to that place and think they could do that is pure insanity to God. That's why he laughs. He says, you got to be kidding me. You think you have the right and power and even ability to take God, who is the maker of the universe, who, because we are here this morning, allowed and ordained us to breathe and wake and live, who in one moment can go like that and all humanity is done, who sustains and holds and created the universe and holds all things together, you think you can speak to that God and say, we're just going to take away your power and your rule and authority. It's absurd. And God will not be mocked. There is no human being that can kick God out of the picture because this is his picture. He is doing everything to orchestrate his kingdom rule that will come and reign and nothing can defeat or overthrow him. And even when human beings mock God, he will not let it go without consequence. It does not go unnoticed. And this includes a verbal mocking of God, but it also includes what I call a lifestyle mocking of God. And what does that mean? We're going to get to that in a second. But before we do, I want to talk about the second truth we see in this passage of Scripture. And that is the truth that, of reaping and sowing. Paul is writing to this church in Galatia, and he's using an example he knows that they will get because most of the people in this culture were um, from an agricultural background. That's how they made their money. And so he uses an illustration that they'll understand, sowing and reaping. And look at what he says in verses 7 to 8. He opened by saying, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. And then he says, for whatever a person sows, he will reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. He gives two situations. You sow to the flesh, you get destruction. You sow to the Spirit, you get eternal life. You have paradise. So let's look at these options. The first one, if you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. He's pretty clear in what he says here. He's saying that a person cannot claim to follow Jesus at the same time be in obedience to their sinful desires, or what he calls the flesh. Now, what does he mean by the word the flesh? Chris did a great job in his sermon last week. It's one of the best sermons I've heard on how to live the Christian life. If you didn't hear it, you should go back and to our website and take a look. But he did a great job of defining these two options, 
that Paul lays out. You might be saying, this sounds an awful lot like the sermon last week. And if so, you're right, because what Paul does oftentimes is he'll lay out a concept and then he'll repeat it again in a different way. And that's kind of what we're doing. But he describes what he means by working in the flesh and working in the spirit. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Isn't it kind of funny that we kind of say, well, what are the works of the flesh? And Paul says, it's pretty obvious. Look inside. What do you deal with? What do you battle? The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. That's quite a list. And he says, and I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, that's a calling out that's hard for us to hear at times. But what he's saying is you cannot willfully, intentionally, with all heart, dive into the things that are listed there and expect to receive the benefit of being Jesus Christ's son or daughter. You can't willfully and intentionally give your life to that list and expect that all the benefits of salvation, all the benefits that God gives us and to be in heaven when you die is going to happen if that's what you commit to willfully and intentionally. There's a difference between willful and intention, blowing off of God's word and saying, this is just who I am and this is what I'm going to do, and those who really want to follow Jesus, and though they follow him and they're growing, occasionally they will fall and fail. That's part of the Christian life. You are not going to be sinless in sinless perfection in this life. That is to come. We will always fight and battle sin. But when we fall and when we blow it, we ask for forgiveness and we repent and we move on. There's a difference between that process of repenting and moving on and seeking God's will and wanting to live his ways versus just willfully blowing off what God says and saying, it's just easier if I do whatever I want. And Paul is saying, if you are going to take the route of no longer fighting sinful desires, no longer resisting those things, and just let them come and do whatever you want. Be careful, because God will not be mocked. And the result of that is not what you are looking for. Those who just automatically go there with no struggle, with no fight, and they just yield it, and they just settle on the fact that this is going to be my lifestyle, they fall into what I call lifestyle mocking, where we say we are Christians, but we are Christians in word only and how we live however we feel like it. You see, that's a lifestyle mocking. And when we get to that place, we are like the rulers of the world who gather and say, you know what? I don't want God in this whole picture. I'm just going to throw off what he says and pretend like it's not even there. And God looks at that and laughs at the insanity of it and says, you don't have the right to do that. I'm the infinite creator. You're the finite creation. You can't question. You can't pretend it's not there. It's a reality that will always be there. God wants his people to live according to his ways and his word. Why? Because he loves us so much and it's the best for us. That's why he wants to do it. He loves us so much and he knows that his ways, when we live according to his ways, we will have the best life we can ever live. 
And so he wants, as a loving father, for us to live in that way, not blow it off, not to pretend like it's there, but when we read it and we obey it and we walk it out, you can't just say you're a Christian and live however you want. And you say, but Dan, what about once saved, always saved? And I got to be honest with you, as a pastor, when I hear someone say that, I get really nervous. Because oftentimes what they say isn't what they mean. And if by once saved, always saved, you think that means that you can pray a prayer, invite Jesus into your life, and then live however you want, you're not saved. Because when you invite Jesus in and you realize the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness he gives you and there's a heart transformation that happens inside you, the next reaction is, God, you loved me and cared for me and forgive me. You do all these things for me and that just blows me away that I'm a recipient of such grace and mercy and love. How can I live any other way but to live the way you want me to live? You see, then our holiness is empowered by this gospel-loving action God gives us and we want to walk out that holiness. You see, that means you live out what the, transfa- the transformation that took place in your heart. That's Christianity. Now, when people say, once saved, always saved, I think what they're trying to say is, don't you believe in what theologians call the doctrine of eternal security, which means that once you give your life to Jesus Christ, can you lose your salvation? And I believe in that doctrine. I believe if you are genuine and you give your life to Jesus Christ, you won't lose your salvation, but you have to be very, very careful and understand what that doctrine means. The actual word for it is the perseverance of the saints, meaning those who persevere in walking out the ways of God to the end will never lose their salvation. There's perseverance behind it. And the other thing we have to realize is you can't take your theological framework or the theological idea and place that upon the scripture to somehow excuse verses in here and make yourself feel better and take away the pain and the sting of something that says, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be quick to say, oh, but my theology says that that's not what that's explaining and now I'm okay. Our theological frameworks don't get laid upon the Word of God. They come from the Word of God. The Word of God is the authority, and we take what it says at face value. So when you read this and it says, if you willfully do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, it means if you willfully do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Word is clear, and we have to be careful as Christians on how we look at that. I think at times we have become too casual in the church with our sin. I think at times we've become too casual as Christians in terms of how we live. Sometimes I think we get too casual about what comes out of our mouth, or we get too casual about what we view with our eyes, or we get too casual about what we hear and listen to, and it has effects on us. And sometimes I think we do that just out of plain old immaturity, but sometimes I think we do that and we allow the standard of sin to be lowered and we do whatever we want in a way to try to relate to people of the world to say, hey, look, we're not that much different than you. You can come in and hang with us. And we try to make it look like, so we're real, authentic, and true people. And I'm all for being authentic and real. I'm all about that. 
However, when you look throughout church history and you see what God did and how he moved in powerful ways, there's two things that are in act there. One is the church is extremely loving and kind, but also the church is living according to God's ways and the standard of holiness is up so they look different than what the people in the world look like. First Peter tells us that when we live out our faith in the world, we need to do that with kindness and loving graciousness and, and how we call out sin, we're careful in how we do that. But it also says we're supposed to live differently and set apart so that when we are accused and brought to a court for the living out the faith that we have, they look at our good record, it says, and says, well, how could this happen? We can't lower the standard in order to be okay with the world. We have to rend our hearts to what God is saying and obey it. Do you know there was a F-16 this week in the Netherlands, and it had to make an emergency landing for a really, really strange reason. And the strange reason is it shot itself. See, on an F-16, there's a, a Gatling gun and a cannon, and that cannon fires 6,000 rounds per minute. And each of those rounds travel at 3,450 feet per second. The crazy thing is the plane travels faster than that. And so what this pilot did is they, he fired this cannon, he made a maneuver, came around and actually went faster than the bullets and then got hit by the own bullet that he fired and, and shot up his own fuselage. So he had to make an emergency landing back at the airport because he shot himself. See, I think technology outdid the human ability there. And many times we as Christians, in trying to be clever and trying to be cute and trying to be real, we can shoot ourselves in the foot. And we take our personal holiness and we shoot a hole right through it. And God is saying, I don't want you to live like that. I want you to live according to my word. So he gives us a second option. Look in verse 8. He says, those who sow to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Here's a difference here. The promise of sowing to the Spirit is an amazing, glorious, wonderful thing that gives us a soul-satisfying joy in this life and also paradise in the life to come. We are saved by grace, not by our works. We've seen that through this whole letter. However, the quality of our life in action still matters. Holiness matters. To choose earthly pleasures over God has drastic consequences. God demands that if we place our trust and faith in Jesus, we will faithfully live to God in his ways. Our good works and holy actions do not save us. We've learned that through Galatians. However, they are essential evidence that we have been saved. You see, you accept God's beautiful gift of salvation by grace and you believe it, but then when you walk that out, it produces the good works and that's where good works come in. It's evidence that you had a heart transformation. So we don't blow those things off. Just so in the spirit means we engage in the fight against sin. Instead of just yielding to it, the sinful desires and say, well, that's how it is, 
We fight those, and we beg God in prayer for His help. We saturate our minds with Scripture. We put songs in our hearts of worship. We get honest about people who are safe that we care about and love and say, this is my struggle, will you hold me accountable? We do things like look at the root of what's causing this sin. If we have to, we go to a Christian counselor and say, how do I live in a more appropriate way that God wants me to live? And we attack those things. And by the grace and the power of God, we live out holiness, not in our own will and our own strength and by obeying all the laws, but we live out holiness because we get overcome by the love and the power and the grace of God, and it becomes the overflow of what's happening. God made his truth clear. He says the sinful things there, and he lists all those things in chapter 519. And then he says, here's the things that happen when you live by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, when I see these lists, what I say is that God's way is better. God's way is better. And so when we look at this, we have a choice. The choice is this. Will we adjust our lives to live by God's truth, or will we blow it off? Will we adjust our lives to live by God's truth or will we ignore it? Will we take when God is calling us and say, here's how I want you to live, it's better. Do we trust him with that? Or do we say, no, God, I got this. I'm going to trust in my own ability to dive into things that I want to because I know that that will give me a better life. Who are we going to trust and will we adjust? So in closing, I want to look at three things that help us Live by the Spirit of God, to sow by His Spirit that we'll reap. And the first one is this, is that we look to Christ, not more faith. Now, what does that mean? That seems like a huge, uh, huge paradox. We look to Christ, we look to Him, not more faith. Theologians remind us that sometimes, as God's people, we think wrongly about faith. We hear Jesus say things like, oh, you have little faith, or oh, you need more faith. And what we think is we need to increase our faith to another level. We need to have an intensity about our faith. But in all those statements where Jesus says, you have little faith, or you need more faith, what he's referring to is not faith of itself. He is referring to the object of your faith, which is him, Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that the object of your faith is so small. You don't know who God is. You're not realizing who it is that you're giving your life to. And you need to take the object of your faith and increase that, magnify that, live that out. To live a life of faith means that the object of your faith is increased. It doesn't mean faith itself is worked up and increased to a new level. Like I know I'm going to believe and believe and believe. It's not that we muster up more faith. It's that we increase the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. And to fight sin and to overcome sin and to live the way that God wants you to live, you only have one option, church, and that is to look to Jesus Christ. You don't look at this list and say, I'm going to focus on being loving and joy and kind. You don't. You look at Jesus Christ. And you say, will you come and invade my soul in such a way that you totally take over and transform my life? We look to Christ. We don't look to ourselves. We let the object of our faith increase. The second thing we have to do is we have to live a life of repentance. We have to look a life of repentance. If you are driving down the road and you are heading north and your destination that you entered into your GPS is south, 
You will hear that annoying voice at times say, rerouting, 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 and it will instruct you to turn around. Do you know why? Because you cannot make your destination, you cannot arrive at your destination if it's south, if you are going north. It won't work. And the same is true for a Christian. If your destination is heaven, you will not arrive there if you are living a way opposite of what God wants you to live. And so the Holy Spirit comes and says, reroute, reroute, repent, repent. And what he's saying is when you're living this Christian life and you sin and you blow it, you go on your knees and you say, God, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you live a life of repentance. Now there's an initial repentance that is a repentance from willfully and blowing off God's ways, and intentionally living in a sinful matter. You start that process of ending that by an initial repentance and saying, God, I'm sorry. But repentance isn't a one-time deal. It's something that as followers of Christ, we should do every single day. I love this verse in Psalms. I committed to memory a while back. It's from Psalm 139. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there's any anxious way in me. If there's any way in me that offends you, lead me to the way of everlasting. And a way for someone to sow the Spirit to reap eternal life is to regularly open up this passage and say, God, will you search my heart? Will you see if there's any offensive way in me? And when God starts to bring things to mind, which he's faithful to do, then you say, God, will you forgive me for that? I repent. I want to live for you. When you wake up in the morning as a Christian, you live a life, you you do a practice what I call consecration, meaning you say, God, I give you my life. I give you my day. I give you my emotions, my will, my desires, my decisions. I want to yield myself to you that I can be your instrument in the world today. And then at the end of the day, when you're before you put your head on your pillow, you move from consecration, and instead you go to confession. And you say, Jesus, forgive me for all the things today that where I blew it. Forgive me for all the ways that I failed you. Will you cleanse me for that? I want to live for you. And that way of consecration, confession, that's how Christians live. That's the Christian lifestyle. A theologian named R.C. Sproul said it this way when he described the Christian life. He said, Christians live, Christian lives should bend towards a progressive ceasing from sin. However, they will not experience an absolute ceasing from sin this side of heaven. Our full ceasing from sin will happen in heaven first. Until then, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Nevertheless, in Christ, we have died to sin's claim upon us. Therefore, believers are not enslaved to sin, but they possess the power to resist sin through the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is what we said. You don't just willfully go off in sin. You've been set free from that. You don't have to be enslaved for that. You resist sin and you, you, over, you overcome it ultimately when you die, but in the meantime, the role of a Christian is that when sin comes, you repent and confess, and then when the temptation is there, you fight and you resist, and you say, Jesus, will you help me with this? We don't just surrender right away and yield to every temptation and do whatever feels good. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is also not we're going to live in total perfection and never sin again. It's already, but not yet. We are growing in this. And the way that we do that and the way we walk out our faith then is to live a life of repentance where we're constantly going back and doing that. 
The final thing is that we need to trust what God said is best. If a person is sowing in the flesh, if they're just willfully living all these things that we see in Galatians 5.19 and not giving any concern to it, what they're saying is, God, you don't know what's best. God, I know what's best for me, you don't. God, I trust in my ability to discern what's best in me, not in your ability to discern. I don't trust what you say here. I'm going to live however I want. You see, we have to trust that when God says something in his word, it's not just for, to bum us out. It's not just to give us a bad time in life. When God says something in his word, it's because he knows what's best, and he has the best life in mind for us. Isn't that what a good father would do? Have his children live to what's best. So we have to ask the question and answer it. Do we trust that what God says in the Bible is the best way for us to live? And to the extent that we're not, it means that we don't believe that. And we need to be honest about that and repent. Now there's a lot of lists of sins here in this list, from sexual morality to anger to selfish ambition to enviness to drunkenness and all these things. But I have one example I want to share with you. I know a couple who received the benefit of growing up in a church that taught the Bible well. And they received the benefit of going into a youth group when they were teens where the youth pastor taught the Bible well. And in looking at this thing called sex and the gift of sex that God gave, they were taught that the gift of sex is a beautiful thing that God gave. But he gave it in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And just like Fire is a beautiful thing in the fireplace, and if you take it out of its context of the fireplace, you're going to have real problems. Sometimes the gift that God gave of sex to happen between a husband and a wife in a context of a relationship that's supposed to last forever, if you pull that gift out of its context, you could have problems. And this couple knew that, and they heard these calls. They were taught the Bible well, and they made a commitment to not engage in sexual activity until after they're married. And they made a commitment that they're not going to do that, they're only going to do that with one person, and that's their spouse. Now, was that easy to do in today's world? No. Some people will even say it's impossible. You can't do that. To think that way is archaic. But that's what God says. And this couple purposed to do that, and it wasn't easy. But with God's grace and power, they are able to do that. And their marriage now is a place that's fulfilling. It's a place that's flourishing, where intimacy happens, and it's a beautiful thing. You know why? You know what intimacy is? We're confused about intimacy. Biblical intimacy is this. It's being fully known by another human being without fear of rejection. That's intimacy. To be fully known by another without fear of rejection. And the Bible says that God created us to long for intimacy. Every person longs to be in a place where they can be fully known without fear of rejection. And when you walk out the context of physical intimacy the way God designed, it flourishes in an amazing way because there's intimacy or because there's no comparison to past partners and past experiences. So there's no rejection even on the table. It's there because it's not cheapened because of an attitude that says, I'm just going to live however I want, and it doesn't really matter. And so when we live marriage in the context of sexual relations, the way God designs, it's built in a way to create an amazing marriage relationship. Now hear me. Some of you, that's not your story. And I think more and more in the world, that story is kind of disappearing, partly because I think the church has backed off and never, start, never uh, stopped talking about this. 
as this saying that if you didn't do that, if you took sex outside the context of God's design, does that mean you can never, ever have a fulfilling marriage? No. God can redeem and make all things new. Does it mean that you are a horrible person and you're never, ever, ever going to live with God's blessing if you don't follow it that way? No. God can forgive and restore and make all things new. But here's the deal, and this is what I'm getting at this morning. I think at the church, we've taken the bar, and because that broken story, which can be beautiful because God can restore through his grace, but we've made that the main goal. And we've somehow lowered the bar. Instead of aiming for what God calls as his best, we say that's too hard. Let's just say if you blow it, it's okay. And in doing so, we cheapen ourselves out of God's absolute best. And not only for the adults in the room, but what about the standard we will hold for our kids? Don't we want to give our kids the best possible standard in a way that God has for them? Wouldn't it be better instead of defaulting to, well, if you blow it, there's grace, which is all true, but wouldn't it be better to hold out the picture of what God says here and say, aim for this. Make this be the goal. Make this be the standard. And some of you parents feel like, you know what, I've blown it so I can't speak into it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. To say, you know what, I am in grace. I may have done it right, but you know what, I believe that this is the standard and I implore you to live like this because this is God's best for you. And as a loving parent, wouldn't we want nothing short of what's God's best for our kids? What would happen if the church of Jesus Christ, instead of settling and lowering the standard to accommodate our maybe guilt and not wanting to face reality, instead we kept God's standard high. And we said God loves us so much that he forgives us, he restores us, he redeems us, but then he loves us so much that he doesn't call us to live in the way we used to live. He calls us to a greater life, a life that's better, a life that is laid out the way he wants to. What would happen in our world if the church of Jesus Christ lived to the standard that God's had instead of a standard of compromise? If there was ever a time in human history where the world needs to see the church of Jesus Christ living out the church of Jesus Christ's ways, living out God's ways, now is the time. And though there's grace when we blow it, that's one of the amazing things about God. We still need to hold the standard of holy living high. And we still need to be, as God's people, marked by that. Is it easy? No way. It's so much easier just to cave. But God's not calling us to a life of ease in this time period. He's calling his church to rise up and with all the grace and all the love and all the forgiveness he can give us and shower upon us, we then let that empower us to live holy, bold lives declaring his standard. That's the church that we need now in this day and age. Let's pray that we get there. Father in heaven, I thank you that you love us as we are. I thank you that there is nothing we could do that would change your love for us. There's nothing we can do that would stiff arm your forgiveness. There's nothing that we can do that could stiff arm your grace. 
And God, I'm also thankful that when we open our hearts and receive that, you empower us to live a different way. And Lord, that's not easy and we so blow it. But God, I ask that you lift our eyes to see something greater than maybe perhaps where we're living now. That you would lift the trust of our hearts towards you and not on ourselves. God, would you change and empower us to live according to your design? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.